Chapter 10 of Superwomen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Superwomen by Albert Payson Terhune. Chapter 10 The Most Gorgeous Lady Blessington. She was the ugly duckling of a family of seven beautiful children the children of queer old shiver the frills power of tipperary her name was marguerite her father picked out a pretty name for the homely girl and then considered his duty done marguerite was a great trial to everybody to her good-looking brothers and lovely sisters to shiver the frills who was bitterly chagrined that his record for beauteous offspring should have been marred by so hideous an exception to the family governess who wouldn't even take the trouble to teach her to read to the neighbors whose joy in beauty she offended altogether marguerite was taught to consider herself a mistake it is a lesson that children learn with pitiful readiness perhaps the mystic unpardonable sin consists in teaching them such a damnable doctrine her father's baptismal name was not really Shiver the Frills, though nobody ever spoke of him by any other term. He had been christened Edmund, and he was a squireen of the Tipperary village of Knockbrit. He was a local magistrate, and he fulfilled his magisterial office almost as well as a mad dog might have done. He had an insane temper. He did not confine this to his home where he beat his children and servants most unmercifully but aired it on the bench as well notably when in a rage he lawlessly commandeered a troop of dragoons and galloped over tipperary and waterford counties with them hunting down and killing peasants who had stirred his anger to maniac heat by some petty uprising he was a dandy fop macaroni toff whatever you choose, too, in a tarnished and down-at-heel way. And from his habit of eternally shaking out his dirty shirt-ruffles and lace wristbands in order to keep them from hanging limply, he was called Shiver the Frills. Marguerite's home life was one unbroken hell. Starvation, shabby genteel rags, beatings, and full-flavored curses were her daily portion. A kind-hearted neighbor, Miss Anne Dwyer, took pity on the poor, abused little ugly duckling and taught her to read and write. But for this, she would have grown up too ignorant to pass the very simplest literacy test. And an odd use the child proceeded to make of her smattering of education. Before she could spell correctly, she began to write stories. These she would read aloud by the peat smolder, on winter evenings to her awed brothers and sisters who looked on such an accomplishment as little short of supernatural wonderful stories she wrote all about princesses who had all the clothes they could wear and who could afford three square meals with real butter every single day of their lives and about princes who never swore at or beat children or flew into crazy rages or even fluttered dirty ruffles the girl's gift at story-writing gave her a higher place in the family esteem than she had ever enjoyed before. 
so did another miracle which came to pass when marguerite was about twelve she grew pretty the ugly duckling in less than a single year developed from repulsive homeliness into a striking beauty in fact by the time she was fourteen she was far and away the loveliest of all the exquisite power sisters then began her career of superwoman for with dawning beauty came an access of the elusive charm that sets marguerite's type apart from the rest of womankind and men were swift to recognize her claim to their worship the swains whom shiver the frills allowed to visit his tumble-down mansion paid court to her instead of to her sisters the fame of her reached the nearby garrison town of clonmel and brought a host of young redcoat officers swarming to the knockbrit house of these officers two soon put themselves far in the van of all other contestants they were captain murray and captain maurice st leger farmer murray was a jolly happy-go-lucky penniless chap lovable and ardent the kindest thing one can say about captain farmer is that he was more than half insane marguerite met captain murray's courtship more than halfway but shiver the frills told the sighing but impecunious swain to keep off and ordered marguerite to marry farmer who had a snug fortune marguerite very naturally objected shiver the frills flew into a ready-made rage and frightened the poor youngster almost to death by his threats of what should befall her if she did not change her mind so cowed into submission she meekly agreed to marry farmer and marry him she did in eighteen o five when she was but fifteen it was an early marrying age even in that era of early marriages many years had passed since sheridan's metrical toast to the maiden of bashful fifteen and as now a girl of fifteen was deemed too young for wedlock but all this did not deter old shiver the frills from a laudable firmness in getting rid of the daughter he hated so he married her off to a man who ought to have been in an insane asylum in an asylum for the criminally insane at that if marguerite's life at knockbrit had been unhappy her new life was positive torture farmer's temper was worse than shiver the frills and he added habitual drunkenness to his other allurements there is no profit in going into full details of marguerite's horrible sojourn with him one of his milder amusements was to pinch her until the blood spurted from her white flesh he flogged her as he never dared flog his dogs and he used to lock her for days in an unheated room in winter with nothing to eat or drink marguerite stood it as long as she could then she ran away you can imagine how insufferable she had found farmer when i say she went back by choice to her father's house shiver the frills greeted the unhappy girl with one of his dear old rages his rage was not leveled at the cur who had so vilely misused her but against the young wife who had committed the crime of deserting her husband not being of the breed that uses bare fingers to test the efficiency of buzz saws 
i neither express nor so much as dare to cherish in secret any opinion whatsoever on the theme of women's rights but it is a wholly safe and non-controversial thing to say that the fate of woman at large and especially of husband deserters to-day is paradise by comparison with what it was a century ago for leaving a husband who had not refused to harbor her marguerite became in a measure an outcast she could not divorce farmer she could not make him support her unless she would return to him she was eyed askance by the elect her own family felt that she was smirched shiver the frills cursed her roundly and is said to have assumed the heavy father role by ordering her to leave his ramshackle old house without money without protector without reputation she was cast adrift there was no question of alimony of legal redress of freedom the laws were all on farmers side so was public opinion strange to say no public benefactor even took the trouble to horsewhip the husband he was not even ostracized from his own circle for his treatment to his girl wife remember this was in the earliest years of the nineteenth century and in a country where many people still regarded wife-beating as a healthful indoor sport less than three decades had elapsed since a man immortalized by thackeray had made the proud boast that during the first year of his married life he had never when sober struck his wife in anger nor was it so very long after the lord chief justice of england handed down an official decision that a man might legally punish his wife with a rod no thicker than his lordship's thumb whereat one woman inquired anxiously whether his lordship chanced to suffer from gouty swelling of the hands oh it was a merry time and a merry land for women this merry england of the good old days marguerite vanished from home from friends from family and a blank space follows in the lives of scores of superwomen of lola montez marie de chevreuse lady hamilton adam menken peg woffington adrien le Couvreur, even of cleopatra there was somewhere a hiatus a dark spot that they would never afterward consent to illumine and such a line of asterisks sheared its way across marguerite's page at this point she is next heard of as leading a charmingly unnunlike existence at cahair and two years later at dublin at the irish metropolis she enamoured the great sir thomas lawrence whose portrait of her is one of his most famous paintings and one that is familiar to nearly everybody the picture was painted in eighteen o nine when marguerite was just twenty and in the early prime of her beauty she had ever a knack of enslaving army men and her next wooer in fact lawrence's lucky rival was an irish captain one jenkins she and jenkins fell very seriously in love with each other there was nothing at all platonic in their relations jenkins was eager to marry marguerite 
and when he found he could not do so because of the trifling obstacle that her husband was alive he sought a chance to put captain maurice saint leger farmer out of the road but he was a square sort of chap in his way this lovelorn jenkins he balked at the idea of murder and a duel would have put him in peril of losing marguerite by dying so he let farmer severely alone and contented himself by waiting impatiently until the drunken husband emeritus should see fit to die and until that happy hour should come he declared that marguerite was at least his wife in the eyes of heaven startlingly novel mode of gluing together the fragments of a fractured commandment but the strange part of the affair is that captain jenkins eminently respectable family consented to take the same view of the case and publicly welcomed marguerite as the captain's legal wife and so for a time life went on marguerite was as nearly respectable as the laws of her time gave her the right to be jenkins was all devotion she was moderately well received in local society and she kept on winning the hearts of all the men who ventured within her sway then into her life swirled charles john gardiner earl of blessington one of the most eccentric and thoroughly delightful figures of his day blessington was an irish peer a widower a man of fashion he had a once enormous rent-roll that had been sadly honeycombed by his mad extravagances but that still totaled one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year what chance had the worthy but humble captain jenkins against this golden-tinged whirlwind wooer and the answer to that conundrum is the same that serves for the question concerning the hackneyed snowball in the inferno blessington swept marguerite off her feet bore her away from the protesting captain and installed her in a mansion of her own then too late came the happy event for which jenkins and marguerite had so optimistically been looking in october eighteen seventeen captain maurice saint leger farmer joined some boon companions in an all-night orgy in the upper room of a pot-house farmer waxed so much drunker than usual that he mistook the long window of the room for the door bidding his friends good-bye he strolled out of the window into space being a heavier-than-air body in spite of the spirits that buoyed him up he drifted downward into the courtyard below breaking his miserable neck marguerite was free jenkins hastened to her and besought her to marry him offering her an honorable name and a place in the world and pointing out to her how much better off she would be in the long run as mrs captain jenkins than as the brevet bride of a dissolute earl but blessington had by this time become the helpless thrall of marguerite's charm as soon as he heard of farmer's death he whisked her off to church and married her and by way of doing all things handsomely he soothed the disconsolate jenkins feelings with a fifty thousand dollar check thereby securing firm title to the goodwill and fixtures of the previous tenant of his wife's heart the earl took his new wife to his ancestral home at mountjoy forest and there the couple kept open house 
spending money like drunken sailors and having a wonderful time it was the first chance marguerite had ever had for spending any large amount of money she so well improved her opportunities along this line and got such splendid results therefrom that she was nicknamed by a flowery irish admirer the most gorgeous lady blessington and the name stuck to her to her delight all through life blessington had always been extravagant now goaded on by marguerite he proceeded to make the prodigal son look like gaspard the miser one of his lesser expenditures was the building of a theatre on his own estate that he and marguerite might satisfy to the full their love for amateur theatricals at this theatre they and their friends were the only performers and their friends were the only spectators the performances must have been gems of histrionic and literary excellence and a rare delight to every one concerned it would have been worth walking barefoot for miles to witness one of them for the actors were bound by a list of hard and fast rules devised and written out by lord blessington himself you may judge the rest of these rules by the first which read every gentleman shall be at liberty to avail himself of the words of the author in case his own invention fails him one's heart warms to the genius who could frame that glorious rule for stage dialogue but marguerite was of no mind to be mured up in an irish country house with perhaps an occasional trip to dublin she had begun to taste life and she found the draught too sweet to be swallowed in sips she made blessington take a house in st james square in london there for the next three years she was the reigning beauty of the capital her salons were the most brilliant spots in the london season her loveliness made her and her home a centre of admiration she had more than good looks more even than charm she had brains and she had true irish wit a wit that flashed and never stung she had too the knack of bringing out the best and brightest elements in every one around her so while men adored her women could not bring themselves to hate her she was in her element there in london but blessington was not in his he enjoyed it all but he was no longer young and he had led a lightning rapid life so though he was ever a willing performer the merciless pace began to tell on him marguerite was quick to notice this and she suggested that a nice long lazy tour of the continent might brace him up marguerite's lightest suggestions were her husband's laws so to the continent they went and london mourned them they set off in august eighteen twenty two no irish nobleman says one biographer and certainly no irish king ever set out on his travels with such a retinue of servants with so many vehicles and appliances of all kinds to ease to comfort and the luxurious enjoyment of travel they planned to go by easy stages stopping wherever they chose and for as long as the fancy held them they travelled in a way a modern pork king might envy one day in paris at the races lady blessington exclaimed 
there is the handsomest man i have ever seen one of the throng of adorers hanging about the blessington box confessed to knowing the stranger and he was accordingly sent off post haste to bring the handsomest man to the box the personage who was so lucky as to draw forth this cry of admiration from marguerite was at that time but eighteen years old yet already he was one of the most noted or notorious men about town in all europe he was alfred guillaume gabriel count d'orsay a typical ouida hero he was six feet in height with broad shoulders small hands and feet hazel eyes and chestnut hair he was an all-around athlete could ride fence box skate shoot and so on through the whole list of sports he was a brilliant conversationalist he could draw he could paint he was a sculptor and at none of these things was he an amateur but as good as most front-rank professionals he was later to win fame as the premier man of fashion of the period a once celebrated book the complete dandy had d'orsay for its hero everybody who came in touch with the youthful paragon fell victim to his magnetism and even lord blessington who should have been wise enough to see what was coming was no exception young d'orsay at marguerite's instigation was invited to go along with the blessingtons on the rest of their travels he accepted this meant his resignation from his regiment which was at that moment under orders to leave france to invade spain he threw over his military career without a qualm he had fallen in love at sight with the most gorgeous lady blessington who was fourteen years his senior and at sight she had fallen in love with him it was the love of her life the party moved on to genoa here they met lord byron who had found england a chilly abiding place after the disgraceful affair that had parted him from his wife byron was charmed by lady blessington's beauty and cleverness and spent a great deal of time with the blessington party of tourists d'orsay he liked immensely once referring to him as a greek god returned to earth marguerite he frankly adored and so far as one knows that was all the good it did him with a wonder youth of the d'orsay type ever at her side lady blessington was not likely to lose her sophisticated heart to a middle-aged lame man whose power over women was at this time largely confined to girls in their teens but byron was the greatest living poet as well as the greatest living charlatan and marguerite consented to be amused in desultory fashion by his stereotyped form of heart siege even though his powers of attack were no longer sufficient to storm the citadel still the time passed pleasantly enough at genoa and byron solved his bruised vanity by wheedling lord blessington into buying his yacht a boat that the poet had long and vainly tried to get rid of faring better with my lord than with my lady he sold the boat at a fancy figure there was a farewell banquet at which he drank much 
then the blessingtons and d'orsay departed from genoa on the white elephant yacht and byron stood on the quay and wept aloud as they sailed off they went to rome but the eternal city somehow did not appeal to lady blessington so they gave it what would now be vulgarly termed the once over and passed on to naples here marguerite was delighted with everything the trio took a naples house and lived there for two and a half years the mansion lord blessington rented was the palazzo belvidere which cost him an enormous sum but like an automobile the initial price was the smallest item of its expense marguerite perhaps to atone to herself for the squalor of her rickety girlhood home declared the place would not be fit to live in until it had been refitted according to her ideas her ideas cost a fortune to carry out but when at last the work was done she wrote that the palazzo was one of the most delicious retreats in the world she also hit on a thoroughly unique if costly scheme for sightseeing for example when she visited herculaneum it was with the archaeologist sir william gell as guide when she went to museums and art galleries she took along a showman such celebrities as unwin the painter westmacott the sculptor or the antiquary milligan and when she visited the observatory it was under the guidance of sir john herschel and the italian astronomer piazzi more than one of these notables sighed hopelessly for her love from naples the party went to florence here walter savage landor met marguerite and he was little behind byron in his appreciation of her charms by this time nay long before this time people had begun to talk and to talk quite distinctly marguerite did not care to be the butt of international gossip so she enlisted her husband's aid in an effort to silence the scandalous tongues blessington's mode of doing this was highly characteristic of the most eccentric man living he promptly offered to make d'orsay his heir if the latter would marry lord blessington's fifteen-year-old daughter the earl's only living child by his first wife d'orsay did not object it mattered little to him whom he married the girl was sent for to come to florence and there she and d'orsay were made man and wife the trio thus enlarged to a quartet all hands next set off for paris lady blessington learned that the house of marechal ney was vacant and she made her husband take it at a staggering rental and again she was not satisfied until the place had been done over from top to bottom the job was finished in three days the army of workmen receiving triple pay for quadruple speed lady blessington's own room was designed by her husband he would not allow her to see it until everything was in readiness for her this is her own description of it the bed which is silvered instead of gilt rests on the backs of two large silver swans so exquisitely sculptured that every feather is in alto relievo and looks nearly as fleecy as those of a living bird the recess in which it is placed is lined with white fluted silk bordered with blue embossed lace 
and from the columns that support the frieze of the recess pale blue silk curtains lined with white are hung which when drawn conceal the recess altogether a silvered sofa has been made to fit the side of the room opposite the fireplace pale blue carpets silver lamps ornaments silvered to correspond the salle de bain is draped with white muslin trimmed with lace the bath is of white marble inserted in the floor with which its surface is level on the ceiling a painting of flora scattering flowers with one hand while from the other is suspended an alabaster lamp in the form of a lotus it was in this house that lord blessington died of apoplexy in eighteen twenty nine perhaps after a glimpse of the bills for renovating the place marguerite on his death was left with a jointure in his estate which estate by this time had dwindled to fifty thousand dollars per annum her sole share of it was seven thousand five hundred dollars a year and the blessington townhouse in london all along d'orsay and his wife had been living with the blessingtons when lady blessington came back to england they accompanied her and the three took up their odd form of life together at gore house in kensington albert hall now stands on its site for marguerite could not afford to keep up the blessington mansion she tried to eke out her income by writing for she still had the pen gift that had so awed her brothers and sisters one of her first pieces of work was a book based on her talks with byron back in the genoa days the new monthly magazine first printed serially this capitalization of a dead romance the volume later came out as conversations with byron and of all marguerite's eighteen books this is perhaps the only one now remembered she was engaged at two thousand five hundred dollars a year to supply a newspaper with society items then too she edited gems of beauty a publication containing portraits of fair women with a descriptive verse written by her under each picture straight hack work altogether she made about five thousand dollars a year by her pen a goodly income for a woman writer in her day or in any day for that matter among her novels were meredith grace cassidy the governess and the victims of society you have never read any of them i think if you tried to as did i they would bore you as they bored me they have no literary quality and their only value is in their truthful depiction of the social life of her times she did magazine work too and wrote for such chaste publications as friendship's offering the amulet keepsakes and others of like mushiness of name and matter once more her salons were the talk of all england and once more the best men crowded to them but no longer did the best women frequent the blessington receptions the scandal that had been hushed by the sacrifice of the earl's daughter to a man who loved her stepmother had blazed up fresh when the d'orsays went to live at gore house with marguerite and women fought shy of the lovely widow 
it is one of the mysteries of the ages that so canny an old libertine as lord blessington should have been hoodwinked by d'orsay and marguerite there is no clue to it except perhaps he was not fooled perhaps he was too old too sick too indifferent to care and when d'orsay's unhappy young wife in eighteen thirty eight refused to be a party any longer to the disgusting farce and divorced her husband the gossip whispers swelled to a screech the wife departed d'orsay stayed on there is every reason to think marguerite was true to her young greek god but if so it was not for lack of temptation or opportunity to be otherwise in her late forties and early fifties she was still the most gorgeous lady blessington still as lovely as magnetic as adorable as in her teens among the men who delighted to honor her salons with their frequent presence and more than one of them made desperate love to their hostess were bulwer dickens thackeray sir robert peel captain marriott brougham landseer tom moore disraeli and many another genius disraeli one day to rule british politics as lord beaconsfield was at that time merely a brilliant politician and an almost equally brilliant novelist there is a story i don't vouch for it that piqued at marguerite's coldness toward himself disraeli revenged himself by portraying d'orsay right mercilessly as count mirabeau in his henrietta temple landor was drawn by her lure into returning to england the aged duke of wellington too was a guest at her more informal at homes marguerite used such influence as she possessed over the duke to persuade him to let d'orsay paint his portrait so well did the picture turn out that the duke cried in delight at last i've been painted as a gentleman to the blessington salons came an american a man whose clothes were the hopeless envy of broadway and whose forehead curl was imitated by every yankee dandy who could afford to buy enough pomatum to stick a similar curl to his own brow he was n p willis you don't even start at the name yet that name used to thrill your grandmother willis was a writer and gained more temporary fame for less good work than any other author our country has produced during a tour of england he was fortunate enough to receive an invitation to call on lady blessington and thereafter he called almost every day he fairly raved over her she is one of the most lovely and fascinating women i have ever known he wrote then he wrote more he wrote a story of something that happened at one of her soirees he sent it to an american paper never dreaming it would ever be seen in england but the story was reprinted in an english magazine and d'orsay showed willis the door another visitor to gore house was a pallid puffy princeling out of a job and out of a home he was louis napoleon reputed nephew of napoleon the great and he was one day to reign as napoleon the third emperor of the french in the meantime 
exiled from france he knocked around the world morbidly wondering where his next suit of ready-made clothes was to come from he even visited the united states for a while teaching school at bordentown new jersey and sponging for loans and dinners from the jumels and other people kindly disposed to the bonaparte cause just now he was in england living when he could on borrowed money and sometimes earning a few shillings by serving as special policemen outside of big houses where dances or receptions were in progress out of the few english homes open to the prince was marguerite blessington's marguerite and d'orsay took him in fed him lent him money and did a thousand kindnesses to the poor outlawed fellow you shall learn in a few minutes how he repaid their generosity while marguerite had a talent for writing she had a positive genius for spending money and where talent and genius clash there can be only one final result her talent as i have said brought her about five thousand dollars a year her income from her husband's estate was a yearly seven thousand five hundred dollars more but how could people like marguerite and d'orsay keep abreast of the social current on a beggarly twelve thousand five hundred dollars a year the foregoing is a question not a flight of rhetoric it has an answer and the answer is they went into debt they threw away money as apt pupils of the lamented earl of blessington might readily have been expected to when they had no more money to pay with they got credit at first this was easy enough tradesmen high and low deemed it an honor to be creditors of the all-popular dowager countess of blessington and of the illustrious count d'orsay and even after the tradesmen's first zest died down the couple were clever enough to arrange matters in such a way as to keep right on securing goods for which they knew they never could hope to pay stripped of his glamour his pretty tricks and his social position d'orsay shows up as an unadulterated deadbeat a sublimated panhandler while marguerite's early experience in helping shiver the frills ward off bailiffs and such like gold-seekers now stood in her fine stead they were a grand pair their teamwork was perfect between them they succeeded in rolling up debts amounting to more than five hundred and thirty five thousand dollars to tradesfolk alone d'orsay in addition to this managed to borrow about sixty five thousand from over-trustful personal friends thackeray is said to have drawn from them the inspiration of his vanity fair essay on how to live on nothing a year d'orsay before consenting to let his wife divorce him had stipulated that the earl's daughter pay him a huge lump sum out of the blessington estate he was also lucky at so-called games of chance and his painting brought in a good revenue but all this money was swallowed up in the bottomless gulf of extravagance little by little the tradesmen began to realize that they were never going to be paid and they banded together to force matters to a crisis in that era debt was still punishable by imprisonment and prison gates were almost ready to unbar inhospitable welcome to marguerite and d'orsay
like dick swiveller who shut for himself one by one every avenue of egress from his home by means of unpaid-for purchases in neighboring streets d'orsay discovered that it was no longer safe to leave the house officers with warrants lurked at the area railings of gore house tipstaves loitered on the front steps all sorts of shabby people seemed eager to come into personal contact with alfred guillaume gabriel count d'orsay on sunday alone when the civil arm of the law rests did the much sought-after couple dare emerge from the once joyous house which had grown to be their beleaguered castle no longer could they entertain as of yore least a rascally warrant server slip into the drawing-room in the guise of a guest finally the net tightened to such an extent that d'orsay had great ado to slip through its one gap but slip through he did and escaped by night to france marguerite's wit arranged for his escape and the man who lately had disdained to take a weekend journey without a half dozen servants and a half score trunks was forced to run away in the clothes he wore and with single portmanteau marguerite joined him at boulogne little better equipped than he oh but there were heartbreaking sights in those days in boulogne in calais and in havre englishmen who had fled their own country for debt used to haunt the french seaboard as being nearer their own dear land than was paris they used to pace the esplanades or cower like sick dogs on the quays straining their eyes across the tumbled gray water to glimpse the far-off white cliffs of their homeland they would flock to the pier when the channel packets came in longing for the sight of a home face dreading to be seen by someone who had known them in sunnier days sneered at by the thrifty french denied a penny's worth of credit at the shops they dragged out desolate lives fifty times more bitter than death it was no part of marguerite's scheme to enroll d'orsay and herself among these hangdog exiles she had ever built air castles and she was still building them she had wonderful plans for a career in france she and d'orsay had done much for louis napoleon in his days of poverty and now louis napoleon was president of france and already there were rumors that he would soon make himself emperor he was the man of the hour and in his heyday of prosperity he assuredly could do no less than find a high government office for d'orsay and pour a flood of golden coin into the lap of the most gorgeous lady blessington let me save you from suspense by telling you that louis napoleon did nothing of the sort indeed he seemed much embarrassed and not at all overjoyed by the arrival of his old benefactors in paris he made them many glittering promises but the bank of fools itself would have had too much sense to discount such promises as louis napoleon was wont to make soon after their arrival in paris marguerite learned that creditors had swooped down upon gore house seizing it and all the countless art treasures that filled it house and contents went under the hammer and brought a bare sixty thousand dollars 
not enough to pay one of the d'orsay blessington debts marguerite was at the end of her career she was sixty years old her beauty was going her money was gone she had ruled hearts she had squandered fortunes she had gone through the dark spot ninety-nine per cent of whose victims sink thence to the street while the hundredth has the amazing luck to emerge as a superwoman she had listened to the love vows of men whose names are immortal and now she was old and fat and banished hope was dead a younger and stronger woman might readily have succumbed under such a crisis certainly marguerite blessington was in no condition to face it soon after she arrived in paris she sickened and died d'orsay had loved her with fairly good constancy and he designed in her honor a double grave mausoleum of quaint design and under that mausoleum at chambouret she was buried three years later d'orsay was laid there at her side superwoman and superman they had loved as had cleopatra and antony only in the latter's day it was rome's vengeance and not a creditor warrant that cut short such golden romances End of chapter ten recording by linda johnson